The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hello, and welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with William A. Modrill, PE, a senior geotechnical project engineer from Wood. Will recently hiked the Continental Divide Trail. That is a 3,100-mile trail between the borders of Mexico and Canada. He'll be talking about his experiences during this hike and how it benefited his geotechnical engineering career. I'm your host, Jared Green, and this is the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. Before we get started here, this is a free show and our sponsors help us to keep it free. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for today, Menard USA. Menard USA is a specialty ground improvement contractor that works nationally, providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardgroupusa.com. That's www.menardgroupusa.com. With that, Let's jump right into today's episode. Will, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, Jared? Doing well. I was really looking forward to our conversation, so I'm glad that you could be here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Let's just start out by, uh, if you could tell our listeners some of the insights to your career journey. You think about where you started to where you are right now. And if you could tell us what you do on a daily basis, that would be great. Right now, I'm a senior geotechnical engineer for wood environment and infrastructure. But before that, going all the way back to the beginning of my education and career, I attended the University of Louisville, JB Speed School of Engineering. That's kind of a unique program. It's a five-year master's program. So you come out with both your bachelor's and master's and a year of co-op intern experience in five years. The name of the school is named after JB Speed, but it really is a fast or a speedy program. In my undergraduate career, I thought that I was going to head towards sort of construction management. But when I did that for my co-ops and internships, I realized that really wasn't for me. So sort of in my master's program, I refocused and really dived into geotechnical engineering. I found a really small company that would let me work part time during my master's program. So I was applying exactly what I was learning in the classroom. And then I'd go out and be behind a drill rig or be on a site that was getting drilled shafts installed. So I could see what I was learning in the classroom when I was working for them part time. I went to work for them full time uh, after I graduated. But with them being such a small company, They didn't really have the large infrastructure projects I was really wanting to work on. They had a lot of small commercial jobs. There was a lot of quick turnover. But that company was really good to work for because being such a small firm, you've got to wear so many hats. You know, so I was a CMT technician out there slumping concrete with my AS with my concrete level one testing, 
I was behind a drill rig when we had engineering jobs. Then I would do the lab testing myself, proctors and you know, pushing Shelby tubes and things like that, all the way to writing the report. So I sort of would see a whole project from cradle to grave. And I really liked that, but I just wanted to do that on a much larger scale. So I left that company after working for them for two years. I uh, went to go work for a much larger firm, uh, Stantec Consulting. They're actually headquartered out of Canada, but have a strong geotechnical presence here in Kentucky. So that was a really great company to work for. Tons and tons of huge public projects, working with our KYTC, that's our local Kentucky transportation cabinet, doing a lot of work with TVA and other large energy groups, work with the Army Corps of Engineers. And that work took me all over the U.S. So that was really kind of a neat opportunity to do so much travel working on jobs with Stantec and the Army Corps. As I have progressed through my engineering career, I realized that I'm a really good engineer, but I'm a great leader. I'm sort of trying to work my way from behind a drill rig into more project management. So I saw this opportunity with Woody and I come up to move to a senior position uh, where I've got a little bit more of a leadership role and can start to mentor some young staff engineers on these types of projects. Very nice. And when you say a lot of travel, like how often were you traveling when you were Stantec? When I worked with Stantec, I would say that I traveled 30 to 40% of the time, anywhere from Niagara Falls, New York, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And they had projects even further than that. But at that point in time, it came, it wasn't economical for me to travel to those positions. We'd find someone in a local office to fulfill those roles for us. Got it. And is that coming home on the weekends or coming home, you're out at a site for two, three weeks at a time? Stantec worked shifts, traveling shifts in different settings. If it was an out-of-town trip that was further away, we would typically work 10 days on and four days off. But if it was a job that was somewhat local, you'd be home every weekend. Got it. Now, some of our uh, listeners that are in school and considering job offers, a lot of times that's one of the questions, especially as a geotech. A lot of times people say, I want to travel. So this is a, a way to travel. Good to hear that. You've got an opportunity there if you want it. I think you do limit yourself a little bit by telling your employer, especially in the geotechnical field, you know, hey, I don't want to travel because that's where you really learn a lot of your geotechnical skills is out behind a drill rig doing these field investigations. So you do limit yourself. But if you're in a situation where you can't travel, if you've got a young family at home that you need to be with, there's still plenty of career opportunities out there. You just have to be a little bit more creative. Not true. There's a uh... Plenty of opportunities to do exclusive design, and there's plenty of opportunities to do exclusive field, and then there's definitely plenty of opportunities to, to do both. So that, I think those are the, the things that make uh, the field very attractive when you think about geotechnical engineering. I want to hear more about the trail hikes. And you know, I understand you've gone on quite a few trail hikes over the years, but I'd like to hear more about the Continental Divide Trail. I understand that that hike was instrumental to the way you're doing things now and the way you're looking at things. So please tell us more about it. So I grew up in the, being an active participant in the Cub Scouts and then Boy Scouts of America. My scout troop was very active. We'd go on campouts at least once a month, if not twice a month. And then my cousin, when she graduated from college, she actually hiked the long trail in Vermont. It's about a 200 mile trail that hikes from south to north in Vermont. She did that when I was about six or seven years old. I had just joined the Cub Scouts, was really starting to love being in the woods, being outdoors. Uh, and then all of a sudden, my adult cousin 
went and lived in the woods essentially on the long trail for a month or two. And so I just thought that that was the coolest thing ever that any adult could ever do. But as the years went on, my memory wasn't exactly correct. She had hiked the long trail, but I had falsely remembered that she had hiked the entire Appalachian Trail, which is a 2000 mile trail from Georgia to Maine. So I said, well, goodness, if my cousin can do it, I'm going to do it. Her 200 mile long trail journey inspired me to go on a 2000 mile Appalachian Trail journey. And from there, you're just sort of hooked. That journey took me 100 days, which is a lot faster than most other people hike. Uh, So I did it in three months. Most people take about six, but I did it in between my graduating with my bachelor's degree and coming back in the fall to start my master's degree. So I remember getting back to town, getting cell phone reception after I had just finished the trail and having a call, having a voicemail from the dean of my civil engineering college saying, hey, I know that you had registered for these several classes, but we had to shift your schedule around because there was a class conflict. Hope that's okay. I didn't really have a choice because I had to be back in school the next day. So it was a quick end and then quick transition back into college. But from there, I was just sort of hooked on these long distance hikes. There's just an aspect that you miss in your day to day life. You know, we live in America, the freest country in the world. But unfortunately, we put so much of a schedule on ourselves. Right. You know, we got to be at work at 8 a.m. We got to eat lunch from noon to one. Then, you know, when we go home, we might have T-ball with the kids or our favorite shows on and we got to be in front of that. We're so incredibly free, but then we're so restricted, but we do that to ourselves. But when you're on this trail, you're free to do whatever you want. If you want to sleep until 10 a.m., great, sleep till 10 a.m. You might only hike five miles that day because you slept in so much. You are, are the creator of your own day there. You have unlimited freedom. If you want to eat all of the food that you have for the next four days today, That's fine. You're going to be really full and really happy, but then you're going to be miserable the next couple of days. Just that true sense of personal freedom, just sort of getting away from the rat race and then just a a real connection with nature. That's where I feel the most at home is in the outdoors. I think a lot of geotechnical engineers might also feel that way. That's why we became geotechnical engineers, right? We, We feel a connection to the earth, to the soil, to being out behind a drill rig. We don't necessarily want to be in the office all day. We want to go out and be in nature, be in the field. You know, you finish undergrad, you know, you have grad school in a few months and you say, I'm going to start on the trail. I mean, do you have like a point that you have to hit and then you turn around? Like what's the thought process there for the schedule? Cause you want to have freedom, but what's the thought process for when you're planning for something like that? This is a funny story. The engineer in me said, okay, this trail Appalachian trail, it goes from Georgia to Maine. It's 2,200 miles. I know that I have 100 days to do it. And so I said, that math's real easy. I'm just going to do 22 miles a day. It'll work out just fine. And I had written out on an Excel spreadsheet that I was carrying with me, you know, exactly what mile markers and what shelters I needed to hit. The first day, I think I got 10 miles. The second day, I was like, I'm going to wake up early and make up those miles. There was no way. And so you just realize that you have to be flexible, right? The terrain is going to affect your mileage some days. The weather is going to affect your mileage some day. Your mood is going to affect your miles some days. So some days you take what's called a zero day, right? You just don't hike any miles. You need to let your body heal. You need to let your mind relax. You just stay in camp and just enjoy where you are. 
And then my longest day on the Appalachian Trail to make up for some of those zero days was 35 miles. So you just realize that you've got to be flexible. You know what the end goal is, right? You know, hey, I've got to get to Maine. And so you just put the work in as hard as you can every day. I knew that I was going to be happy with myself, even if I didn't make it, so long as I gave it 100%. That's great. And did you end up doing it by yourself or you went with some folks? Most of these trails, I end up starting solo, but you meet other people who are also on the same journey. And you might hike with them for a day or two or a week or longer, just depends on if their pace matches yours. They might have some family visiting them when you get to a town or want to stay in a town longer than you do. So you just sort of pass in and out of these groups of people. And it's a great way to meet people. You bond with them really quickly because there's no cell phones out there. There's no TV shows out there. You know, if you're having a conversation with someone, you're in that conversation wholly. There's no way to just sort of zone out and, oh, all of a sudden now I'm playing on my phone and not really listening to what you're having to say. You become friends with these people really quickly. But one of the most interesting things is when you're out on the trail, you don't go by your real name. Most people (laughs) adopt a nickname or a trail name. This is something that is just sort of given to you by the other hikers around you, typically describing a personality trait or something about you. My trail name is Diesel. That's because I hike like a diesel engine. When I wake up in the morning, I put my head down and I just go all day. I'm not necessarily the fastest hiker out there, but I hike at a slow, steady pace and I just don't stop until the sun goes down. So you meet all of these people. They just sort of become legends in your mind because you never know their real name. You just know their trail name. So I'd be curious, discoveries, when you think about what you experienced, then you went back to grad school, right? And now you're working as a geotech. How do you apply some of these things you learned? I don't know if you have trail names for the folks that you lead in your office, but how do you apply some of this? The biggest lessons that you can take away from this trail are just endurance and perseverance and hard work. It's not easy to wake up every morning and hike 20 miles. Your muscles get sore, your feet get tired. When you're a thousand miles in and still have a thousand miles to go, it's, it's hard to envision that end goal. You just sort of feel stuck. Like in the middle of the project, maybe you're at 60% designs and you just keep getting changes back from your client. You're like, oh my gosh, we're never going to finish this. But you learn that perseverance to just keep going, to keep pushing through to the end. That's got to be the biggest lesson that I can take away from these through hikes and and apply is, is endurance and perseverance. Where do you find the motivation when you have a zero day and another zero day after that? I mean, what's the motivation? Is it we got to finish? We promise people we're going to make it. Like what motivates you on the down days? Every day is different. You can be down in the dumps for on the trail for many different reasons. But usually all it takes is is a five minute look around you, you know, just sort of take a panoramic look for five minutes and, and realize how fortunate you are to have such beauty around you. Some people listening to this might object, but the most recent trail that I was on was the Continental Divide Trail, which had almost 800 miles through New Mexico. I thought New Mexico was not particularly beautiful. So if anyone's in New Mexico and listening to this podcast, I'm sorry, but at least the hiking on the CDT through your state, it sucked. There in New Mexico, it was harder to use the beauty around you as motivation. In New Mexico, at least for me personally, my motivation was just survival. The next water source is 40 miles away. If I want to take a drink anytime soon, I better get to moving. If you are in a, in a group, hiking with a group, hey, I promised these other hikers that I'm going to be at camp with them tonight. 
And so feels good to be welcomed into a camp. You know, if they're already there and have some tents set up or maybe a little campfire going, it's always nice to see some friends at the end of the day. There's all these different things that can motivate you. But like I said, I try to just use the natural beauty around me as my biggest motivation. I love it. You think about times that you're in the field and you're a construction site and it's 6.45 a.m. Rig hasn't started yet. You got water in your boot, right? And it's like, oh, I got water in my boot. It's the beginning of the day. What am I going to do, right? I hate my life. Try to find something to get you through. That's uh, super helpful. And in those groups, did you find that you were diesel engine or you like the leader some days and other days you were like, I need you guys to pick me up. I mean, how did that work out? The dynamics there. Absolutely. It is a dynamic situation. Some people come to the trail and they're really fit and they're really in shape. And then other people are still sort of getting what's called their trail legs. When you hike 20 miles a day, you lose a lot of weight. Your legs get very thick and muscular. And so once you sort of hit that peak fitness, then it's called having your trail legs. You've got your trail legs. You're an efficient hiker. Early on, the people who have trained really hard for this hike are leading. And then sometimes they burn out too quickly. They push too hard too early. And so then these it's the tortoise and the hare situation. The tortoises, you know, end up being the ones leading later on. But, you know, it, it just changes. And everybody's mood is different every day. And so you might be a leader today and a follower tomorrow. You're an engineer, right? So are you walking around with like a ton of different maps or Brunton Compass? You know, are you like mapping out crops while you're there? I'm curious, you know, or are you just focus on the trail? When you're backpacking, you're trying to be as lightweight with your gear as possible. So I didn't actually even carry a compass or paper maps. Used some apps on my cell phone, which doubled as my camera for navigation. But I would definitely sort of show my geotechnical engineering side. We'd hike up on a rock outcrop and say, oh, man, look at those bedding planes. Or, oh, I can tell you that that's definitely some volcanic rock or different things like that. I'm definitely pointing out things to my fellow hikers and they just sort of roll their eyes. They're like, oh, geez, you know, we don't really care about that stuff. I've got so many pictures of random bedding planes, you know, and all these different rock outcrops that we would hike past. I love it. It's the things that we appreciate, whether you're in a metropolitan area, big city, and you're walking by the construction fence, you're like, look, that's a caisson rig, right? Or if you're in a trail, it's like, we're always the ones that are kind of off to the side, looking at something that seems random, but it's really exciting to us. Exactly. I guess you would say this is a leave of absence. Took a leave of absence to do these trails between undergraduate work and grad work. And I assume that was for the work-life balance. Is that safe to say? Or... The company that I hired on with right out of college, since they were such a small company, they were flexible enough to where they just didn't hire me full time until I completed my second trail. That's the Pacific Crest Trail. So that's out on the West Coast. That's California, Oregon, and Washington. So instead of being hired on in May when I graduated, I just hired on in September when I came back. So these three trails that we're talking about today are part of what's called the Triple Crown of hiking. So it's the Appalachian Trail on the East Coast the Pacific Crest Trail on the West Coast, and then the Continental Divide Trail, which runs the spine of the Rockies. And so I had completed those other two hikes right around college. And I knew that I was had two main goals um, after I had completed those and had graduated college. One was to earn my PE. And then the other one was to finish this Triple Crown, which would mean that I'd need to hike the Continental Divide Trail. When I hired on at Stantec, in my interview process with them, I, I just explained the situation. I said, hey, look, you guys are a great company. I really want to come to work for you, but here's the deal. In four years, 
after I've had my four years experience as an EIT, and once I take the test and once I earn my PE, I'm celebrating. I'm taking off and I'm going to go hike the CDT. And you guys, hopefully after me being with you for four years and then building that relationship, we can find a workaround. This trail means so much to me that if I've got to quit and come back to you later, I'll, I'll do it. So I ended up leaving Stantec before this trail, but I did the same thing with Wood. I was going to hike the Continental Divide Trail in 2020. However, the Trail Coalition asked everyone not to hike. They didn't want COVID being spread along the trail. So that got pushed. I started this hike in May of this year, but I had just started with Wood in January. So that was a little bit of an awkward situation. You know, hey, I'm going to come work for you for four or five months, and then I'm going to be gone for six. But I think if people are looking for work-life balance, it's important to be upfront. Before I even accepted an interview for this job, I explained the situation. I said, I'll respect you more if you tell me that you can't handle this. I'll call you in the fall when I get back. They were familiar with leaves of absences. They said, you know, hey, we've got this great policy. I think that your situation applies. Employers really just appreciate honesty and being upfront and giving as much notice as you can. Really, most of these policies, including Stantex and Woods, really are meant for like extreme personal situations. You know, if you've got a family member that is in a car accident and needs care or an extreme bereavement situation, but these companies are flexible enough to let me use them for an adventure. A lot of times people don't think that they can even ask something. So sometimes somebody will just quit. Right? And it's like, you don't even have that conversation of this is what I'm planning want to see if there's a way that we could both win. Did I stay on as an employee? That I have this experience that's going to enrich my life and allow me to bring my whole self to work? So those conversations are important. And again, as a leader, I'm sure you'd be more than welcome to have a staff you know, say something like that to you. So it's, you're setting a great example. And hopefully uh, folks that are listening in are seeing that you can have your career and you can still have that work-life balance. But what I always tell people is that we don't read minds, or at least I haven't figured out how to read minds. So I don't know... <laughs> what it is you want unless you say something. And then somebody could say no. They could say, we can't honor that, but at least you know. How do you think it benefited your career? You took this time off. You've had these great experiences. How did it impact your career? I think the biggest thing that it saved me from is burnout. If you're traveling as much as I was with Stantec, if you're behind the rig as much as I have been in my career, when you're behind a rig, you're not working a 40-hour work week. If you're out in the field and you're out in Tulsa, Oklahoma, almost a thousand miles away from your home office, you're putting in 70 or 80 hours a week and that'll really burn you out quickly, no matter how much you love your career. And I love being a geotechnical engineer, but just that amount of hours burns you out. Or even if you're in the office only working 40 hours a week, but you've got a really demanding client that can burn you out just as quickly as well. So taking these really long stretches away from the office and just sort of being able to calm myself, reset, and then come back to the office missing work. It's great to take a one-week vacation, and I think that that's what the majority of people do. But think about it. You're stressing beforehand because you're, you're trying to tie up all these loose ends and say, you know, hey, if you need me while I'm gone, call this person instead or email this person. Maybe you're checking your email while you're on your vacation. That's not very relaxing. And then when you get back, you've missed a week of work, so you're trying to play catch-up. Yes, you've taken a week off of work, but it's not really very relaxing. And taking these longer vacations, these longer leaves, and you really do fully relax. You just sort of let work fade away, 
shift your priorities to the trail or whatever you might be working on or whatever you might be doing. And then you can come back to work totally refreshed. And I think that that makes you a much better employee. Have you seen other people taking a similar approach or are you kind of the only one at this point in your circles? In my circles, I'm the only one crazy enough to do these big, long hikes. You know, I know other people will sort of try to stack their vacations and and take big, long vacations. And then other people, you know, just take every Friday off and use their vacation up that way. So I think it all depends on what works for you. But for me, these longer vacations, more spread apart is what's better for me and my work-life balance. Just to clarify, when you say behind the rig, are you talking about logging borings or are you talking about operating like a rig to push cones or something like that? I never operated a rig, but I was logging samples, split spoons, Shelby tubes, rock core. So some people would argue that 10-hour day logging borings is less demanding than 20 or 30 miles per day on a trail. They're just taxing in different ways. Hiking 30 miles a day is, is very physically taxing. I find hiking to be meditative, right? It's very repetitive, one foot right in front of the other. And so you just can sort of fall into this meditative trance and just let your mind just go wherever it needs to go that day. Let your body do the work. But when you're behind the lit rig and you're, oh, is this clay, sand, silt? You know, what's its consistency? What's its flow count? You know, that's very mentally taxing. Your body might not be tired, right? Unless you're helping the, the drillers carry their augers and carry their core barrels and everything. But it's taxing just in different ways. Final piece of advice. What would you share with engineers that may be pursuing a career similar to yours? So you can look at that from standpoint of your career advancement or even work-life balance. Like if somebody hears something here, what would you advise them? I think the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten, and so I'm just going to continue to pass this piece of advice on, is how important your engineering judgment is. One of the most frustrating things to me early on in my career is that I felt like the coursework that we had in geotechnical classes wasn't necessarily lining up with what I was seeing in the field. True geotechnical consulting is a lot more engineering judgment-based than it is formula-based, right? And that's why experience in the field is so important. Early on in my career, I was on a job site doing some drilling, taking some core samples, and I didn't have cell signal. I was seeing things in these borings that weren't consistent with what was being mapped in that area. And so I had to make a judgment call to do more borings, to shift the program. I didn't have cell signal to call my boss to try to figure out what was going on. He ended up disagreeing with my decision to do more borings, right? Because that increased our drilling subcontractor bill and then, you know, of course, affected our budget. But he did appreciate my engineering judgment. I made a decision and I stuck with it. And he said that that was the most important lesson that I could learn that day. I think that that's the best piece of advice that I can give someone, especially early on in your career. You might not have the right answer, but it's important to use your engineering critical thinking to make a decision and to stand by it. It might be the wrong decision. Your peers, your employees, your bosses are going to respect that you thought critically about the situation, made the best decision with the data that you had and you're standing by it, you're defending it. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't say, oh, well, you know, this or that. Stand by your decision. It's not going to be the end of the world if it's the wrong decision. Okay, our drilling bill was $500 higher for the two extra borings that I took. $500 is not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. But I learned so much that day. 
So really focus on your engineering judgment. That's not something that they can teach you in the classroom. They can teach you formulas. They can teach you proper drilling techniques, but they can't teach you engineering judgment. So really just try to, to take that and develop your engineering judgment and stand by your decisions. I think that's a good place to uh, take a pause, Will. We're going to come back in uh, just a moment and close this one out with our Career Factor Safety End segment. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? So today, of course, we're speaking with William Modrell. Will, you've already had a successful career. And when you look back at that career, what's one thing you implement in your career to give yourself, we'll call a factor of safety in your career? The biggest factor of safety in my career that has helped me advance as quickly in my career as I have is to always try to be the hardest working person in the room. You're never going to be the smartest person in the room. There's always going to be someone who has more experience, who has gone to another training, who is even just a little bit smarter than you, right? I think it's bad attitude to go into a room thinking that you can be the smartest person in that room. I think you're going to have a lot of attitude problems and a lot of issues if you walk into a room thinking that you're going to be the smartest person. But you can always be the hardest working person. You can always give 120% and people respect that. They note that. They might not give you a pat on the back every day, but when it comes time to your end of year review or you know time for a promotion, your bosses, everyone recognizes that you're the hardest working person there. So I think that that's the best factor of safety that I can offer. That'll really help you in your career is always just try to work really hard and give 120%. That's powerful. I'm thinking about the name diesel and I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> the diesel engine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing all the great insights you shared. A lot of information here and I'm sure this advice will be helpful for our listeners. Now, if a listener is listening or watching and wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get you? Are you on social media or you have an email you want to share? The best way to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm always on there reading articles, posting articles, developing relationships with my peers. So I think LinkedIn is the best way to get a hold of me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is really great. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 33 as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.